Good morning, Crossing Church. Happy Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. Man, I miss you right now. But right now, let me just tell you who's in the house. We got Cole and Josh and Jack. They just led us in the worship. And man, let me tell you something. What a difference it makes for us to be together and sing. That just, that just lifted my soul tenfold, being able to sing live with other brothers in Christ. Then we got TD and Doug rocking the uh, sound booth. We got Chad to my right and Daniel Smith, as you know, open us up in the call to worship. Let's do this one more time. He is risen. I love it. And I really want to get this. Daniel stole my thunder a little bit. We're going to be interactive a little bit right now, even though we're not together. And I want to hear those kids. I want to hear you kids. I want to hear your voices come through that video screen. So here we go. One, two, three. He is risen. All right, here we go. All right, a couple, before we get into God's Word, we're going to just have a couple quick announcements. One, we have TCDC this today, Sunday, uh, 2 to 4. We are open, so make sure you get the, the news out. If anyone has needs of any kind of food, toiletries, uh, etc., hygiene stuff, we have it here at the crossing. This has been an amazing uh, way that we could serve um, the city of Fort Collins in northern Colorado during uh, COVID-19. Last week, we served uh, almost over 60 people. We did 16 deliveries throughout the city to bless people with the stuff that you guys have donated and, the, and, and, and you're not, only, not only the stuff that we've donated as far as the food and the, the hygiene stuff, but also your time. Also your time to come and serve. So thank you for that. The Crossing Distribution Center open today from 2 to 4. Regardless of the weather, we will be open. And then we have one other kind of bittersweet announcement. As you guys know, I sent out uh, Bernie Fuller passed away. One of the great sisters uh, here at the church. She was 93 years old. 93 years she walked this earth. And she came to know the Lord at a very, very young age. And she impacted people for 90 plus years. She loved Jesus. She served Jesus. And she was a great ambassador for Jesus. We're talking about the resurrection of Christ. Well, she is experiencing the fruit of that resurrection right now. She's in the presence of the living God. He sees her. And he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. My, one of my favorite memories of Bernie is when we uh, first got, got to know her about 10 years ago. And it was at a life group setting. It was late. It was about 9 p.m. And she was probably about, I don't know, 83 at the time. And we're like, oh, man. Bernie's like, man, I have to go home. I have to get home. It's getting kind of late. And we're like, oh, Bernie, we're sorry. We went a little bit over this week. She goes, oh, that's okay. I'm just going to go home and watch the Rockies game. I taped the Rockies game. And I was like, oh, I love this woman right here. I wish all grandmas could be like Bernie. So again, it's bittersweet. We're not going to see her for a season, for a time, but those of us in Christ, we will see her at another time. And hopefully it will be sooner rather than later with Jesus. So those are the announcements. We are going to be in Luke chapter 24, looking at the resurrection of Christ, verses 1 through 49. 1 through 49, and I know what you're thinking, 49 verses? We're going we're gonna to go through 49 verses right now? Uh, yes, we are, and hopefully we get through it by next Sunday's gathering, right? No, but really, it's like, where else do you have to be? Like, literally, you, you, you can't go anywhere. You got to stay at home order, so we're, we're captivated on Easter morning together. And also, we don't have any kids up in children's church, so we got all kinds of time to preach this morning. Luke 24, verses 1 through 48. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this day. Lord, you made this day to celebrate 
your resurrection day, and we rejoice and glad in it. We rejoice and are glad because we know that we have life to come, everlasting life, full of joy, full of hope, full of wonder. Lord, we get to spend all eternity with you, the first fruits of the resurrection. Thank you for your life. Thank you for your death. And thank you for your resurrection. And Lord, we can't wait to join you and Bernie in heaven one day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as you guys know, we have been for about a month now walking through a global pandemic called COVID-19. The whole world. There's no one that's been, that has dodged COVID-19. The whole world is going through this global pandemic. Another way of saying it is we've been experiencing a global catastrophe, a global catastrophe. The coronavirus, really what it is, it's just a wage. It's just a wage from the greatest global catastrophe that happened in Genesis 3 many years ago. When humanity rebelled, when Adam and Eve rebelled, from the Lord God. And when they rebelled, sin entered the world. And what came with sin? The wages of death. The wages of death to everyone who has ever been born since Adam and Eve. This is the greatest pandemic, the greatest catastrophe we face, sin and death. No matter how it comes, if it comes through COVID-19, whether it comes from old age as such as in Bernie or whether it comes in a car accident or, or however it comes, death is the greatest catastrophe, and it's global. We all face it. The model, the models are 100% accurate. The death ratio is one to one. We are all going to make it unless the Lord interferes and takes you up to heaven like he did with Enoch or Elijah. Now, that's the bad news, but here we're celebrating good news this morning. We are celebrating Jesus who raised from the dead. And because of Jesus' resurrection, sin and death, we just sung it, has lost its sting, has lost its sting for everyone who repents and believes in Jesus. This global catastrophe has become a global you catastrophe, a global you catastrophe. You ask, what is a you catastrophe? It's a term that I learned and preached on four Easter's ago. It comes from J.R.R. Tolkien. He used this word, you you catastrophe, to specifically relate to the resurrection. It means this. It means a good catastrophe. The prefix EU means good, and catastrophe means destruction, obviously. So a you catastrophe is a good catastrophe. And that's what we are here celebrating this morning, a global you catastrophe. On Good Friday through Sunday morning, some 2,000 plus years ago, it seemed like another disastrous day. Jesus was dead and in the grave. But on this Sunday, on this Easter Sunday, he rose from the dead. He stepped out of the tomb in his glorified physical body. And friends, that is very, very good news. The Easter, we're talking about the celebration that we're here celebrating. The resurrection is the you catastrophe for all those who believe. And this brings us great joy. Jonathan Edwards said this, The resurrection is the most joyous event to ever come to pass. And so today we're going to look at this eucatastrophe through the eyes of Luke, the physician, this morning. So please turn your attention to Luke chapter 24, verse 1. First we see, Jesus has risen, the tomb is empty, verses 1 through 12. Verse 1, but on that first day of the week, that would be Sunday, 
At early dawn, they, who's the they? Verse 10 tells us who the they are. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, uh, Mary, the mother of James, and other women went to the tomb. And they're taking their spices that they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we see here is Mary and her squad of women, at least four, but, but, but four plus, go to show their love and devotion still to Jesus by taking spices to anoint the body. They couldn't do it Friday night because by the time they got Jesus down, the Sabbath had come and they had to rest and they could not go do it. So they're doing it now, three days later on Sunday. They're going to the tomb. And as they're walking up on the tomb, they see this massive stone rolled away from Jesus' grave. And then they go into the tomb to examine it. And there is no body there. Jesus is gone. The tomb is empty. And look at verse 4. Verse 4 says they are perplexed. They're perplexed. They don't, they're, they're at a loss for words. They're stunned. And why? Because, one, this massive stone, the stone some think to be some two tons, was rolled away. So that's one. Who moved this massive stone? Who would do that? But two, the bigger perplexity is that Jesus' body is gone. The tomb is empty. That's why they're perplexed. The ladies were not expecting the tomb to be empty. They're expecting to go with their spices to anoint the body of Jesus. They were going to expect, find Jesus' body in the tomb, and they were going to perform the ritual. And this really is, what this is, is this is really a proof of the resurrection, that the resurrection really did happen, that Jesus really did raise from the grave. Because these women went expecting the tomb not to be empty. But when they found it, it was empty. And the reason why this is a proof is because we tend to think that those people back then in Jesus' day, although they were primitive, they were real gullible, much more gullible than us, the educated. We are, we are much more uh, mature now. We would never fall for such a silly thing as the resurrection as someone being raised for the dead. Well, as we look at the Scriptures, neither did they. they. They're just as skeptical about someone being raised to the dead than us because they go expecting to find a body in the tomb. And we will see this not only with the women, but we also see the disciples. They're um, not expecting the resurrection either. And so this is, they're just like us. They're just like us. So they see this, they're perplexed, and then all of a sudden they're met by two dazzling men. Dazzling men. Later we see the ladies call these men angels in verse 23. And these angels and these men remind the ladies of something. Look at verse 6. It says this, Jesus is not here. He has been risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful man, crucified, and on the third day rise. That was a message that the angels gave these women. And I love verse 8. Verse 8, you can just see it. You can just see the response on the woman's face when they heard this. They remembered his words. They remembered his words. Their perplexities, their sadness was all of a sudden turned to joy because everything now made sense because they remembered the teachings of Jesus. They remembered when they were in Galilee and they heard the voice of their Savior, their King, proclaim that I must be delivered up. I must be crucified, but don't take heart. On the third day, I will rise again. And see what this is now when they take Jesus' death. Jesus' death now all of a sudden makes sense in light of the resurrection. And because of that, there is joy. 
there is joy in the empty tomb. It makes sense. And immediately, immediately it says they go and rush back to tell the 11 and others who are still up in this room. And they're thinking, man, these guys are going to be pumped. The stone is rolled away. The tomb is empty. Jesus' body's not there. Remember, Jesus, he was going to be raised from the dead. He taught us that. You guys remember that? And when they get there, what do, they, what do the disciples say when they hear the story? These are idle tales. You're making this up. We don't believe you. Now, why the disciples? Why do they say that? Because they are not expecting an empty tomb either. They're just as skeptical to hear that the tomb is empty. Just like the women, they had a very vague, if any category at all, for a resurrected Christ, even though Christ preached it over and over and over again. They also forgot the teachings of Jesus. So that's one. The second reason why they they think they're idle tales is because they probably think, man, these women, they just went through one of the most grievous, traumatic experiences they've ever went through in their life. They're emotionally drained. They just saw Jesus, the one whom they thought was their Messiah, crucified on a cross and then buried. So they were just maybe making this up because they're not thinking correctly. But something happens. Something prompts Peter and John at the moment. At the moment of hearing that the tomb is empty. It prompts them to get up and race to the tomb to see for themselves. And when they get there, they, they, they look in. In particular, Peter, he, he looks in, in the empty tomb. And what does he find? He finds Jesus' cloth just laying there. And it says that he walked away marveling. He walked away perplexed. How, where, where is Jesus? How is the tomb empty? Who rolled away the stone? This is the account in which we read about in verses 1 through 12. And the main thought is the empty tomb. The tomb is empty. Jesus is not there. Now, most skeptics and scholars who don't believe in the resurrection actually agree that the tomb was really empty. It was, in fact, empty. Most critics and most scholars believed in the empty tomb. They just hold a different explanation to why it is empty rather than the resurrection of Christ. You see... The burden of proof, though, is on them to refute the claims of a physical resurrection, that Jesus was indeed raised from the dead. And as we look through, we're going to take a look at four of their explanations. We see that they fall woefully short. In fact, they're, they're pretty weak, as I would say. They're weak sauce. It's going to take, it's going to, it takes more faith to believe their explanations than that Jesus was raised from the dead by an all-powerful God. So let's take a look at the few. The few of their explanations that dispute the resurrection, this is what they believe in. First, the earliest explanation comes from Matthew 28. It comes from the Jesus' enemies of Sanhedrin, the leaders of the Jewish people there. They, they said in Matthew 28, 13, uh, when they heard about the empty tomb, that, well, just tell everyone that the, the disciples stole the body. That's the first explanation. The disciples stole Jesus' body. Now, that's just playing out silly and foolish. One, we know it's a lie because we have Holy Scripture that that tells us otherwise. But think about it. Think about it. When do you ever lie to get punished? Right? A lot of us have kids. Kids don't lie to get punished. Why do kids lie? Why do little kids lie? They lie so that they will not get punished. So you're telling me that's natural human instinct is to lie to avoid punishment, that the disciples are going to lie and knowing that, all 11 of them will suffer a martyr's death? Of course not. It doesn't make sense. 
As soon as Peter found out that he was going to be crucified upside down for proclaiming a resurrected Jesus, he would have immediately said, I'm just kidding, and presented the body. So that first explanation doesn't make sense. Of course, the disciples did not take the body. Second myth is this. It's just a made-up story. This is probably more along the lines of the people that we will come in contact with in, in our day and age. Oh, it's just a fable. It's just a myth. It's just, again, one of those stories that, you know, those gullible people made up to comfort them. But I really want us to, to, to quickly point out the context of what, why Luke wrote this gospel and the gospel of Acts. Luke says this in Luke 1, 1 through 4, that he wrote the gospel of Luke for his friend Theophilus. He wrote this book, these 24 chapters, for his friend Theophilus for a purpose. And that purpose was this, that Theophilus may have certainty about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. You see, this is not a myth. This is not made up. Because think about it. Luke is writing for his friend. His friend's soul is on the line. Do you think he's going to make up a story? Do you think he's just going to create some kind of myth? Some fanciful tale that might comfort his friend? No, he's going to do what exactly he did. He's going to become an investigative reporter. Luke was in life actually a real doctor, so he's a sharp guy. He's going to become an investigative reporter because he loves his friend. He wants to get his friend the truth. He wants to have, give his friend the certainty about who Jesus is, his life, death, and resurrection. And so what does he do? He goes out. He goes out to the people who walked with Jesus. He goes out to the people who are eyewitnesses of his teachings, his healings, his miracles, and he interviews them. And he writes down what they experienced. And then he writes down even his own experiences because he writes the book of Acts, and he's there, a companion with Paul. And the key word here is eyewitness testimony. You see, Luke is taking the greatest form of evidence in any court of law eyewitness testimony, and applying it to his narrative. See, this is not some mythological account of fake news. No, he is presenting the facts of eyewitnesses on how the events happen, and he's doing this because he loves his friend, and he wants his friend to have certainty about his soul and who Jesus is. Third, we see someone says, well, everyone went to the wrong tomb. Everyone went to the wrong tomb. Now, you got to think about that for a second. Is that a realistic expectation? How many people went to the wrong tomb? Well, you got the the women going to the wrong tomb. And again, there's four plus of them. Do you think someone might in their little little crew be like, hey, I think we're going to the wrong place? So you have all those women going to the wrong tomb. You have Peter and John running to the wrong tomb. Then you have all the other disciples coming to the wrong tomb. Now, Now, there's other guys too. Who are the other guys? This is absolutely funny when you stop to think about it. The angels went to the wrong tomb. What? The angels got it wrong. Look, I get it, they didn't have Google Maps back in the day, but come on. The angels aren't going to get the tomb wrong. And if anyone goes to the wrong tomb, obviously they could fall back on Joseph Arimathea who was alive, and it was his tomb. He would know exactly where his tomb was. So obviously that explanation doesn't fly either. Finally, fourthly, and quickly, this one came about in 1994 in Time Magazine. Time Magazine published this author. And the scholar, uh, John Dominic Crossan, Jesus Seminar, he said that he believed that Jesus was laid in a shallow grave and some kind of wild dogs came and ate him. That's how he explains the empty tomb. 
again, as we walk through these, and there's many more, and there's many other explanations, but they are just as weak as the one we just covered. They offer no hope. And this is where we, as Christians, as we read Luke's account, an eyewitness testimony that he interviewed eyewitnesses about the resurrection and the empty tomb, we can have boldness. We can be sure that the faith that we stand on, that Jesus truly was raised from the dead, solid evidence, solid explanation, we can be sure. We can be certain with Luke's friend Theopolis. It is the only explanation that makes any sense, that the God who created life can also raise his own son from the dead. So take heart this morning. The resurrection is true. Your life is built on a firm and solid foundation, the cornerstone of a physical resurrected Christ. And so do you believe the teachings of Jesus that the same women, that the teaching that the women believed when they heard from Jesus? Is this the explanation you give for the empty tomb? Again, build your life on this truth. Jesus is risen, risen. the tomb is empty. Secondly, we're going to spend the rest of our time in this category. Jesus is risen, sadness turned to joy, verses 13 through 49. Look at verse 13. That very day, same day, it's the same day. We're still talking about Sunday, a little bit later on the day. Two of them, two of these men, two of these disciples, one of them is named in verse 18, this guy named Cleopas. Something very interesting about Cleopas. We don't know much about him in Scripture, but Tradition, church tradition says that this is Joseph's uncle, Joseph, the father of Jesus. So a brother, I'm sorry, so Jesus' uncle. He was probably a leader in the church. That's what tradition says, that Cleopas might be Jesus' uncle, Jesus' dad's brother, Joseph's brother. And they were going to this village, Emmaus, about seven-mile hike along the road, and they were talking with one another, these two individuals, Cleopas, and it could have been his wife, could have been his, his brother, could have been his uh, friend, who knows. And they're talking about the things that just happened. They're talking about Passion Week. And as they're talking, all of a sudden, Jesus pops up and starts walking with them, walking alongside of them. But it says in verse 16, it says, their eyes were kept from recognizing them. This is a divine restraint right here. Jesus restrains them from recognizing them. If, if Jesus didn't do this, they would have immediately recognized Jesus, even though he is in his resurrected physical body. They would have recognized him, and this chapter, the rest of this chapter, would not have happened. So Jesus restrains their eyes so they cannot rep- recognize him. So at this point, while they're walking along, Jesus is listening to their conversation. Jesus is a stranger to these men. And then verse 17 says this, And he, Jesus, said to him, what is this conversation that you guys are holding with each other as you walk? What are you guys talking about? What happened this past week did I miss? Now, do you think Jesus really asked that question because he didn't know what they were talking about? Of all people, he knew exactly what they were talking about because he lived it. He was the main character in the drama of the last week of everything that went down in Jerusalem. So, of course, he knew what they were talking about, but this is typical Jesus. This is Jesus wanting to draw out something from these men. He wanted to hear where their hearts were. He wanted them to be honest where they were at with their feelings on everything that they had experienced. He wanted to hear them. And one of my, in my study, one pointed, me, pointed my attention to Malachi 3.16. It's kind of a side note, but it kind of fits. It says this in Malachi 3.16. Then those who feared the Lord and spoke with one another, the Lord paid attention 
and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. And it goes on to say that the Lord will bless those who speak well and honor him. So think about that. When you and I are together and we're talking about Jesus, guess what? He's listening. He's paying attention to what we're talking about. And not only is he listening and paying attention to what we are talking about, but it's being recorded in heaven in these books of remembrance. So this is pretty, pretty neat to think about. Just think about it. Think about how many books of remembrance are going to be under your name in heaven. How often are you regularly talking with Jesus with someone else during the week? How many books are you going to have up there? Well, again, side notes closed, but this is just interesting because these two men are walking and they're talking about Jesus and he is physically there. Jesus is interested in what they're saying about him. So Jesus asked the question, what are you talking about? Now, this question does something to Cleopas and his partner. Look at verse 17. It says this, and they stood still. They stood still. The question Jesus asked stopped them in their tracks. They couldn't believe what they just heard from Jesus. They couldn't believe that Jesus was asking this question. They're walking along, and all of a sudden, Jesus hey, what are you guys talking about? They just, they just stunned they stopped. And they're like, what? What did you just say? They immediately stop walking. They can't believe what question they were. They can't believe the question that was just asked them by the stranger. Again, it literally stops them in their tracks. You know this feeling, don't you? You've had this feeling before. When you engage in that, when you're engaged in an activity and have a conversation with someone, and then they say something so crazy that you stop whatever you're doing, you just turn to them and be like, "What? What did you just say?" You know this feeling. It's this, this is a feeling Cleopas has of, of disbelief. I cannot believe you just asked that question. Not only disbelief, but they're also sad. It says they're. They, they stood still and they were also sad. Why? Because they hoped that this Jesus was the Messiah, the one who was going to come to rescue them. It was, just, it was just seven days ago. It was just last Sunday in which they were uh, on the hill of Mount Olives and they were watching Jesus ride down on his donkey. They thought the fulfillment of Zechariah was taking place. Zechariah chapter 9. The king is here. They're seeing people throw down their coats. They're waving palm branches. They're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And now they're here. Jesus is, they think, in the tomb. And they're walking away from Jerusalem. In verses 19 through 24, Cleophas gives a great summary. They thought he was the king. They thought he was the Messiah. But in the end, he says, oh, he was just a prophet. He wasn't what we thought they were. He, he didn't meet the expectation that we had hoped for. And their hope was dashed. Their hope was buried, they thought, in the tomb with Jesus. Well, Jesus hears all he needs to hear, and then he responds to him in verse 25. Remember, he's still, he's still a stranger to him, and he responds with a compassionate rebuke on their understanding of Scripture written about him. He says, oh, foolish ones, slow to heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. How do you, how do you think Jesus said that? You think he yelled and he screamed at him? Oh, foolish ones, you guys are so stupid. How, how could you not remember? How could you not believe? Or do you think he said, oh, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken? 
I think it was more the latter. I just want to pause. Doesn't this make you feel somewhat okay? Not, not that we get called foolish by Jesus, but that we see that these were disciples that walked with Jesus, that, that physically heard Jesus teach, that saw him do the miracles and the healings, and yet they were slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Hard to understand. You see, you and I aren't alone. There's some tough things to, to understand in this Bible. We're going through the, uh, the, uh, the book of First Peter, and Peter says that Paul writes things that are tough to understand. So we're, we're in good company. Jesus' own disciples had, were slow to understand and slow to believe. And, and Jesus, recognizing this, verse 27, this is one of the most famous verses in all the Bible, and in particular the New Testament. It says this, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Oh, what a verse this is. You know what this is? This is the first and greatest Easter sermon ever preached. That's what, that, that's what this is. They had a, a seven-mile walk. I'm sure Jesus kind of met them early. Um, Rita and I, we go for walks out there. We usually take, it takes about an hour to cover three miles. So they got at least two, two and a half hours with Jesus. And he unfolds the Old Testament, beginning with Moses in the book of Genesis, all the way through the prophets. And he interprets them, all the scriptures concerning himself. Don't you wish you could Google that sermon? Don't you wish we had that sermon, the first Easter sermon ever preached, was preached by the risen Christ himself? A biblical theology sermon from Genesis to Malachi. and says everything, all scriptures, find their fulfillment in Christ. Yes and amen in Christ. Now I want us to pause. And I want you to think about this. What what verses, what chapters do you think Jesus used? What, what, what were the verses? What was the, this Bible study about in Genesis? What, what do you think Jesus proclaimed? Let me just give you a couple that I wrote down. This is what I thought. First, I think he started out with creation. He said, I, I, I was there when there was nothing, and I created something out of nothing. And then I'm thinking in Genesis 1-6, then God said, let us make man in our image. You, you, you know, I was there when we create, I helped create man. Genesis 3-15, when he created Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve sinned. I'm sure he said this, I am, I'm the one who just crushed the head of the serpent. Satan, death, and the devil, and sin. Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac. He said those things, he interpreted and applied it to about himself. Exodus chapter 12, the Passover lamb. I am the lamb of God that took away the sin of the world. Numbers 21, the bronze servant that was raised up. I am the one who was raised up, and if anyone looks to me, will be saved. How about 2 Samuel chapter 7? I am the true and eternal king from the line of David that has come to rule on heaven and earth. How about Psalm 22, the song that Cole prayed through on Good Friday? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They cast lots for my clothes. 
I am the one who just fulfilled that three days ago. How about Isaiah 7 when we come to the prophets? Isaiah 7, oh, I was the one who was born a virgin. How about Isaiah 9? I am the child that was born and called to be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And how about Isaiah, Isaiah 53? I am the suffering servant who bore the griefs, the sorrows, and the sins of many on the cross. And then oh, he ends with the resurrection. How about Jonah chapter 1 who was three days in the belly of the whale and then resurrected? It was pointing to me. I am the one who spent the last three days in the grave, but I am now alive and resurrected. How about that Easter sermon? That'll preach. That'll preach. It's Christ-centered. It's gospel-centered. It's resurrection-centered. And remember, these guys, he's just a stranger. They don't know this is Jesus. He's still some stranger. And if they were stunned before from the question, hey, what are you guys talking about? They're really stunned now because they just heard the best sermon ever. This was epic. And notice again, Jesus preaches in a moment. It's the same sermon in verse 44 to all those disciples in the room when he goes back to Jerusalem. What a sermon. What a message. Jesus wanting to draw out where they were, and he comforts them with what? He comforts them with a message of redemption, a Bible study about him and salvation. Well, they finally get to the place. They finally get to Emmaus. And Jesus acts like he's going to keep walking, but it's nighttime, or it seems to be nighttime, or late in the day, and they strongly suggest that Jesus stay with them because it's dangerous out there. You don't know what's on the roads, Jesus, and Jesus accepts the offer. And it says that they sit, together and they take bread and Jesus takes the bread bread and then he blesses it and boom at that moment what happens Jesus opens their eyes to who he truly is how about that how about the last three hours for these two guys walking on the road Cleopas with Jesus and all of a sudden they sit down and and it says that the, the bread, they, they, they noticed Jesus when they, when they saw him take the bread. Maybe, maybe they saw him when, they, when he fed the 5,000, he took the bread, and then he broke it. Maybe, it was, maybe he heard something about the disciples who were in the, in the room when uh, the Last Supper, and he saw Jesus break the bread. Their eyes were opened. But what happens immediately after that? He vanishes. He leaves. How about that? How about that roller coaster of, emo- of emotion? All of a sudden, Cleopas and his partner, whoever that is, all of a sudden they're like, man, this is Jesus. He's raised from the dead. And then he's gone. He's gone. Well, I'm sure it takes him a while before they get to verse 32 to respond that they have just seen the risen Christ. And they say this in verse 32, and then they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened up the scriptures to us? Here's a question. What gave the disciples this heartburn? What gave the disciples this heartburn? It was the Bible. It was the scriptures. It was the things that Jesus was, was preaching to them, telling them about him. That's what burned their hearts. The gospel burned their hearts. The story of redemption burned their hearts. This is when I believe they got saved. Their eyes and their hearts were open 
to salvation when they recognized that Jesus was preaching his redemptive message through the scriptures, when they believed his words. I think as I've been going through this, I hope you caught this theme as we've been kind of taking this overview over Luke 24, but this theme of the story of redemption from beginning is found in the scriptures and everything is built upon the words of God pointing us to Jesus and they are proven true by the resurrection of Christ. We see it began with the angel to the women. Don't you remember what Jesus taught you? To the disciples that were just here, when Jesus opened the scriptures up to them, look at verses 44 through 47, in particular verse 45. Then Jesus opened their minds to what? To understand the scriptures. That Christ should suffer that he should be buried, that he should be raised on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sin proclaimed. This just happened to them. Their eyes were open. They recognized their need for a Savior. They repented and believed. This is a work of God on their hearts. Only he can open our eyes. This is why this is so important to us this morning. You see, in the biggest event... In the biggest you catastrophe that the world has ever witnessed, you would think that maybe the first thing Jesus would do after being raised from the dead would go out and do some global, spectacular, worldwide miracle, right? I mean, that's what I would do. I'd be like, hey, the whole world, I want the whole world to know that I have been raised from the dead. But that's not what he does. Instead, what does he do? He goes on a walk with two disciples, two of his followers. He goes on a seven-mile walk and hangs and then has a Bible study. And through this Bible study, they get saved, and then they sit down and they, they have a meal together. That's what Jesus does. He doesn't go, you know, take his act on tour. He doesn't drop a Super Bowl ad about I'm risen, you know. Doesn't go on cable news. No, he, he goes to his disciples to let them know. What a picture. You see, we read and think about this life-changing experience for these disciples, and, and it really was. It really was. But really, in reality, it's not much different than what you and I have gone through in our salvation process. We have experienced an, Emma an Emmaus Road conversion as well. Think about it. You see, wherever the gospel is preached... Whenever the scriptures are preached, there is opportunity to experience the risen Christ. Wherever the scriptures are preached, because they all, all the scriptures point to Christ, there's an experience. I mean, there's the ability, the opportunity to experience the risen Christ. Listen, when you were on your journey, when you first came to Christ, and you were on your road, whatever that road may have been, it might have been in your house, it might have been literally on a road, it might have been at a, at a ball field, whoever it was, you were stranger, then you came and encountered the living Christ through the gospel, through the word proclaimed, and you became, at first, at first you were a stranger, and now you are a friend. And he is your savior. You had the same exact experience as those to the, on the road to Emmaus. Your eyes were blinded, and when you heard the gospel, the Spirit of God opened them. You saw who Jesus really was through the Scriptures. You repented and believed. What a truth. 
What a truth. What an experience. And this, this, this life transformation continues to happen. It continues to go on in our lives. Uh, the, this, this experience that the guys on the road of Emmaus happens continues to transform us. This rhythm, this ordinary rhythm. This ordinary rhythm of, of Christians, disciples getting together in community. Us opening up the Bible and experiencing the risen Savior. And we get to do it over a good meal. That's how we do it in everyday life. We don't need some miraculous miracle to be transformed. We don't need some you know, incredible um, sign or wonder. No, we need each other. We need God's Word. And we need a good, some good food. We need a good steak or some good lasagna. And that's where life transformation happens. This is, what, this is, why, this is why Sunday gatherings are so important. This is why my heart is grieved, because we cannot come together to celebrate what happened on the Emmaus Road. We cannot come together and, and get together and, and open up God's Word physically with one another. This is why Sunday gatherings are so important. This is why life groups are so important. This is why journey groups are so important to your soul and my soul. Because it's in these places where we experience the resurrected Christ together. Well, Verse 33 says, as soon as Jesus, you know, vanished, their hearts burned. They didn't, they didn't wait till morning. They, they didn't wait till morning. They rose that same hour and they went back to Jerusalem. So just think about their hearts. Just think about, again, this, this whatever three, four hour time span. where on the road to Emmaus from Jerusalem. They were sad. They were grieving. Now they're, they're, it's flipped. They've come in contact with the risen Christ, their Savior. Jesus was who they said they were. Their, their worship of Christ last week on Sunday as the King, as the Messiah, was not in vain. In fact, it came to fruition, so they were filled with joy. And they're hustling back to Jerusalem to tell the other disciples. Verse 33, when they get there, there seems to, have, there seems to be a party going on. There seems to be the party going on. Now, you think when the disciples, I mean, these two uh, coming back from Emmaus, you, you think it's like, oh, man, we, you know, they got you know, a couple hours before they get back. It's like, man, how should we play this? What, how, how should, we, should we go in there kind of cool, calm, and collective and be like, hey, what have you guys been doing all day? You know? Anything interesting happened to you? Do you think that's how they played it? They were talking about playing it. Well, when they finally get there, well, their the thunder is stolen because everyone seems to have a contact with the risen Christ already. Verse 33 says, And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. And then, they, and then the, the two told their story and, and what happened on the road and how they was known to them in the breaking of bread. And we see this great... This, this room that was once filled with sorrow just hours earlier is now filled with joy. Sadness to joy. Why? Because they came in contact with the risen Christ. They came face to face with their Savior, and now they're overflowing with joy. Now, as they're sharing, as they're talking with one another, you, you can feel the joy, you can feel the passion. They're excited. They're hooting and hollering, so to speak. You got, you got to think that one of them might have said like, man, when's Jesus going to appear next? And then boom, verse 36. As they were talking, Jesus shows up. And what's their response? They freak out. 
They freak out. Why? Because they think Jesus is a spirit. I mean, Jesus pulled like a Bilbo Baggins right here. Man, he had the wing of power and just showed up all of a sudden, right? And they freak out. But Jesus calms them down and be like, dude, I'm not a ghost. Here, come here, come here. Touch my hands. Feel my feet. See where I was pierced. I'm physical. Now, this is a physical resurrection. Once they calm down, it's like, oh, man, think about that for a second. This resurrected body, this new body, this physical resurrected body 2.0 that we are going to get is going to be far superior than what we're in now. As one says, it's going to have some serious upgrades. We're going to be able to appear or, di- or, or disappear or maybe even walk through walls. Who knows how Jesus got there? Did he just pop in or pop out or did he walk through walls? Who knows? We just know that this body is going to be sweet. But I want us to go all the way down now to verse 41. Verse 41. I love this sentence. And while still disbelieved for joy, they were marveling. It, it took me, talk about things that are hard to understand. It took me a while to, to study this, to, to get to the heart of what this was, what, what, what was Luke saying? And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, what? What, Luke? What does that mean? Why don't you think about it? Put yourself in their shoes. Just three days ago, Jesus, the one they thought was their Messiah, was crucified and laid in a tomb. And now, all of a sudden, he's alive and standing right in front of them. So you can imagine these motions they had, disbelief and joy. I I can't believe this is happening, but it's awesome. This is what they're feeling. It's like this. It's like this. It's like your favorite football team is playing in the Super Bowl. You're down five points with three seconds left, and your team is on offense, and it has the ball at the 50-yard line. And you're thinking, like, great, game's over. Game's over. We only got one play. Just chuck it up. You watch the snap. QB's running around, throws the ball up in the air, the Hail Mary, right? And guess what? Your receiver catches the ball in the end zone for a touchdown. What happens to you? What do you feel in that moment? And when you jump out of your seat, you're like, yes! And at the same time, you're like, I can't believe that just happened. What just happened? It's disbelief for joy. This is what these guys are feeling. At one level, you're, you're disbelief because you, you saw Jesus on the cross and, and laid in a tomb, and he was dead. But then you mean the Hail Mary worked, and now he's standing in front of me. He's alive. He's risen. The tomb is empty. <coughs> what a thought. What a feeling disbelief for joy. So what we see, oh man, what we see in this, in this second half of Luke 24 is we see the change in tone of this chapter. At the beginning, people were sad. They were mourning. They didn't know what they would do. They were locked up. The disciples were locked up in this room. The, the women were going to, to anoint the body of Jesus in the grave. Then all of a sudden, they come in contact with the living Christ because the tomb is empty. They start sharing their experiences and just joy floods their heart. Their sadness has turned to joy. Why? Because the resurrection is now their story. Now here's the good news this morning. Now it was the resurrection their story. The resurrection is your story. It's my story. It's those of us whose eyes have been opened by faith, who have repented and trusted in Christ, that we believe the Scriptures, that we believe the Gospel, we believe what these, these pages say about Him. And now we have a certainty that we are saved, that we have a certainty where once we were a stranger separated from God, now we are a friend. Jesus is our Savior. The resurrection story is now your story, and that makes all things new. 
It makes all things new. We have the same story. You and I know exactly what this feeling feels like of disbelief and joy when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the resurrection of Christ. You know what it feels like to, you know your life. You know how we've been separated from God. You know that you and I, we we don't deserve salvation. We deserve wrath. But Jesus came and lived the perfect life in our place. He was our substitute. God himself was our substitute. He died on the cross to make payment for our sin. He rose again on the third day to show that everything that was written about him was true and will come to pass. And when we sit and when you think about it, you're in disbelief because you know you don't deserve it. I can't believe this happened. Yet at the same time, you know it's joy because it's true, because you have believed in Jesus. You have believed that the tomb was empty and that he is your king, he is your savior. And you and I have this emotions now in our heart, disbelief for joy. So this morning, if this global catastrophe of COVID-19 or maybe your health or maybe your finances has you down, be reminded of the you catastrophe of Easter and be lifted up. Let, it lift, let, let Jesus lift up your soul and take you out of the tomb of despair and let him turn your sadness into joy this morning. Christ is risen He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great message. Lord, thank you for this great hope. Lord, thank you for this emotion of disbelief for joy. And we can have these emotions. We can feel uh, these emotions because of your son, Jesus. Because everything that was written about him is true. The eyewitness testimonies proclaim that the tomb was empty. He was crucified on Friday, put in the tomb as undead on on Friday, and rose again on Sunday. And now that informs our life. Thank you for opening our eyes by the power of the Holy Spirit through the proclamation of the gospel, the scriptures that proclaim your rescue, your redemption for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.